Our text this morning is Psalm 74. My hunch and scholastic opinion is that this is the first psalm written directly after the nation of Israel was by and large exiled to another country. We'll talk more about that during the sermon, but if the anger and disorientation in the psalm surprises you, well, that's okay. What they were going through is difficult to imagine and for most of us almost entirely unrelatable. Oh God, why do you cast us off forever? Why does your anger smoke against the sheep of your pasture? Remember your congregation which you have purchased of old, which you have redeemed to be the tribe of your heritage. Remember Mount Zion where you have dwelt. Direct your steps to the perpetual ruins. The enemy has destroyed everything in the sanctuary. Your foes have roared in the midst of your meeting place. They have set up their own signs for signs. They were like those who swing axes in a forest of trees and all its carved woods they broke down with hatchets and hammers. They set your sanctuary on fire. They profaned the dwelling place of your name, bringing it down to the ground. They said to themselves, we will utterly subdue them. They burned all the meeting places of God in the land. We do not see our signs. There is no longer any prophet, and there is none among us who knows how long. How long, O God, is the foe to scoff? Is the enemy to revile your name forever? Why do you hold back your hand, your right hand? Take it from the fold of your garment and destroy them. Yet God, my king, is from of old, working salvation in the midst of the earth. You divided the sea by your might. You broke the heads of the sea monsters on the waters. You crushed the heads of Leviathan. You gave him as food for the creatures of the wilderness. You split open springs and brooks. You dried up ever-flowing streams. Yours is the day. Yours also the night. You have established the heavenly lights and the sun. You have fixed all the boundaries of the earth. You have made summer and winter. Remember this, O Lord. How the enemy scoffs and a foolish people reviles your name. Do not deliver the soul of your dove to the wild beasts. Do not forget the life of your poor forever. Have regard for the covenant, for the dark places of the land of the habitations. For the dark places of the land are full of the habitations of violence. Let not the downtrodden turn back in shame. Let the poor and needy praise your name. Arise, O God, defend your cause. Remember how the foolish scoff at you all the day. Do not forget the clamor of your foes, the uproar of those who rise against you, which goes up continually. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Anger smokes in the very sanctuary of God in the very temple. I believe this is, as I said, very, very close in time to the Babylonian destruction of the temple. There's nothing nice about it. You can read about it in the historical books of the Old Testament. You can read about it poetically in first to this Psalm and then Psalm 79 and then Psalm 137. I believe each gives a, a further away chronological picture of the horrific story of the Israelites. And the psalmist here, and I say that, it it says a psalm of Asaph, but some scholars think Asaph might have been a group of writers. I'm going to say the psalmist. The psalmist begins not with the thing that happened, 
but with the God whom he or she is in relationship with. They do not begin with the thing, but with God. And I have a concern, and I said it before in a mild way, and I'm going to say it a little bit more directly. Baptists and New Englanders are not impressed by my direct speech. Nevertheless, I'm going to be myself. I'm concerned that if you're praying the same way you were praying in February, you're not familiar enough with the Psalms. I'm concerned that you could watch the news and all of the problems that, uh, problems, all the injustice and fear that black Americans experience. And if you're praying the same, which is actually not a political statement, what I just said, and I'll, I'll explain that in a minute, that concerns me. If after COVID, even if you like being at home and all the people in your house are delightful, you're in the minority and I'm happy for you too, in terms of it's all pleasant all the time, even if your situation is phenomenal, and you're praying the same, I'm not confident you're familiar with the Psalms and how they lead us to answer God about life as we experience it in the world we actually experience it in. What happened? Perhaps it wasn't fully available to you because you haven't read Psalm 74 as many times as, I don't know, I don't know. Perhaps this is the first time you've heard it read out loud. Perhaps the poetry of it is moving to you, but the, the historicity of it is lost on you. So here's what happened. The race, culture, ethnicity, and religion of the Jewish people was violently destroyed. Not utterly destroyed. A remnant remained. And relocated. They were decimated and mocked. They were told to sing the songs of the Lord in Babylon. It was a way of mocking their religion because their religion was tied to a place. We've been learning for the fifth or sixth time since I've been here. I preached a series like this in my church in St. Louis also, how to turn to the Psalms as guides in prayer, both individual prayer and corporate prayer. And there are Psalms of praise. The one we looked at was Psalm 119, which is a very long and and beautiful Psalm that has moments of disorientation in it, but is for the most part oriented on the law of God and how delightful it is to follow God. You have had good days and seasons. They might not have felt like it. Oftentimes we realize a good season after it's passed. You're probably not in one now, but maybe. And the Psalms of Orientation, Psalms of Praise, teach us how to, refl- to answer God for the good seasons he's given us. Psalm 1 is like that. Praise is God that, that because of his teachings, the writer is like a tree instead of like dust. Those are the options that poetically that psalmist uses. There are psalms of uh, lament uh, or disorientation. Lament is perhaps a word that's accessible to you. I think orientation is one that more of us understand because we have felt disoriented by things happening to our body, be it sickness or things happening in the world, things happening to our church, things happening in our family. We've picked up the phone before and our blood has run cold. In addition to Psalms 74, 79, and 137 that trace the, the communal experience of Israel in, in having their race and ethnicity and culture and religion violently shattered and turned into a remnant and literally moved hundreds of miles to Babylon. There's also Psalm 88, which is an individual lament. Those of you that have struggled with depression, Psalm 88 is a friend to you and can relate to you. 
to us. Psalm 74 begins with this. Oh God, why do you cast us off forever? Why does your anger smoke against the sheep of your pasture? Have you prayed, God, this is your fault about COVID? Have you looked up, perhaps from your knees or laying in your bed or in your prayer closet or standing or on a walk and said, God, this horrendous problem of racism is on you. And I think to many of us that sounds weak because it sounds like we're, we're passing the puck, but one of the tools of the Christian life is prayer. One of the practices of the Christian life is prayer. This is Jesus' prayer book where we learn to direct things at God. Is it, did God break his covenant with Israel when he allowed the Babylonians to besiege so violently and uh, exile them? No. But is it a move of profound faith for the writer of Psalm 74 to reflect on the covenant as a way of expressing emotion and pain. And frankly, Christians begin in weakness. It is in our sense of weakness we recognize our need for a savior. It is in our sense of weakness that we come before the Lord, receive new life from him, and then are filled with his strength. Read the Beatitudes. In addition to the Psalms, we begin in weakness. Conquering for us in the book of Revelation is learning to suffer with those who are in need. Anger smokes over the gathering. And I use the word gathering because that's the New Testament word for church and because I think many of you are fond of church, perhaps through... um, COVID and not being able to attend in person, though we are drawn together by the Holy Spirit, you realize how much, you're, how, much you, how much affection you have for this gathering. And I'm thankful. Many of you have, have uh, written to encourage me and others about how much you miss church. Sometimes those emails and texts are more aggressive than others. Either way, I know what you're saying. You long to gather again. So do I. I really want to put up one of the pictures of Jurassic Park, you know. You know who else opened too quickly? Anyway, we're going to start testing that tomorrow. I know you've seen the meme already. Anger smokes over the gathering. Look at verses 4 and 5 and 6. Your foes have roared in the midst of your meeting place. They set up their own signs for signs. They were like those who swing axes in a forest of trees, and all its carved wood they broke down with hatchets and hammers. This is poetic realism. These things happened, and yet the the writer is utilizing poetic imagery because they weren't in a forest. They were in the temple, though they were probably using axes. It was like people who were cutting down everything in sight. I'm moved by this phrase. They set up their own signs for signs. Somehow that poetic move gives my imagination a little more help in understanding that the temple was changed into something entirely opposite of its purpose. And that grieved the writer. Verses 7 or 8 are a little more direct. They set your sanctuary on fire. They profaned the dwelling place of your name, bring it down to the ground. And they said to themselves, we will utterly subdue them. They burned all the meeting places of God in the land. And I said this before, and I'm going to say it again a couple of times throughout this sermon. We need all the types of language to be a human being. That's part of the reason that the Bible is so long. We need the poetic prose of Genesis 1 taking us up to the heights 
and the beauty of the creation of God. We also need the, the, the scientific or theological language telling us about sin and atonement. Much of what we sang about today is drawn from a, a closer to scientific kind of language that Jesus is our new elder brother. Formerly, our elder brother was Adam. This is theological language that teaches us about the power of the atonement, but we also need the poetic language where we know how to respond to God, and it's not simply our feelings, it's our, it's our gut also, and our mind. Our mind can perhaps get to a rational place quickly, perhaps slowly, depending on, on how you're wired and gifted, and we need all of the kinds of language. If you love the book of Hebrews and the book of Romans and perhaps even the book of Leviticus, which is more about holiness than it is about anything else, good. We need that, and we also need to learn to answer God. It's Eugene, one of Eugene Peterson's many books on the Psalms is called Answering God. We must learn from the Psalms, Jesus did among others, how to answer God for life as we actually experience it. We need all the types of language to do that. And for our prayer lives, especially a poetic language. Is this God's fault that this happened to Israel? No, they broke the covenant. He broke nothing. He remained true always. And yet, so the scientific answer would be no. The plain language, so picture Jesus' parables. The, the, we need plain language also. So we need scientific, plain, and poetic. The plain language would be, did God break the, the covenant? Maybe no words. Maybe the plain answer to that would be The poetic answer is yes. You understand the tension I'm, I'm attempting to encourage you with? That as a follower of God, as one who is being grown up by the Holy Spirit, we need to grapple with the theology of the scriptures and the plain teachings and the poetry. When I was uh, 15, my... Uh, Stepmom sent me to um, Europe on a school trip. I remember doing lots of foolish things and having a, I was very, very lucky to be able to go on that trip. Grateful. Got to, a number of my friends went. And the very, very last thing that we did before we left was to go to Dachau, which was a work camp in Nazi Germany. And we got off the bus and we were dead silent. I barely know how to describe it 28 years later with any great amount of clarity. We were there for three hours, and I don't think I talked. One of my two best friends was on the trip, and we walked around and we read, and we knew that we couldn't relate. And the reason I put up this image, and I don't want to overly disorient you or shock you, the Israelites experienced something that most of us cannot relate to. They experienced horrific relocation and vast destruction to their race, culture, ethnicity, and religion. They have put up their own signs for signs. And as we're talking about psalms of disorientation and we're talking about lament, I wonder if you have lamented for your black brothers and sisters and friends. And here's the thing, if your politics block you from that, then they're guiding you instead of vice versa. And if that sounds like a, a one-sided view, email me. It's not. 
It actually exists for both of the problematic political sides of this. If your politics block you from lamenting what's going on and how our black brothers and sisters and friends experience the world, then the order is mixed up. A couple of years ago, I was at Presbytery. Presbytery is our regional governing body. And I was with uh, three friends, 46 churches, seven or eight states. Um, And I was with a number of friends, and I was the only white male in the group, and they started talking about how difficult it is to be a non-white male in our presbytery. And I felt this surge of defensiveness. If you've never felt this, I'm proud of you. I felt this surge of defensiveness. I felt intellectual arguments come up. I felt emotional arguments come up. I don't feel that way. And I started to interrupt them and tell them they were misinformed. And it hit me. That's not what I was to do in that moment. I was to listen. And I remember it so clearly. And the reason I say that is because as followers of Jesus, what we think politically comes later, and it's important, locally, regionally, and nationally. What do we actually do about this? And that's a nuanced conversation. That's not a quick conversation with respect to most of the things going on. As followers of Jesus, we begin with lament, and then we listen, and then we do. And regardless of your political persuasion, that is what followers of Christ are led into. And the way that we lament is to negotiate with God. This is where the Psalms can can become uncomfortable. We don't see our signs. There's no longer any prophet, which might have been a dig at Jeremiah because he was prophesying over this time. Very unliked man for speaking the truth, as many of the prophets were. It would have bothered Republicans and Democrats pretty equally, and they bothered the Israelites like that. The hostages negotiate, so the writer is saying, we do not see our signs. There's no prophet. There's none among us. How long, O God, is the foe to scoff? Is the enemy to revile your name forever? Why do you hold back your hand, your right hand? I'm concerned that when we're disoriented individually or communally, be that religious or neighborhood or or whatever, we start our prayers with, God, your will be done before the complaint part or perhaps taking the place of the complaint part. Tell me I'm wrong. But many of us learned somewhat indirectly, but perhaps directly to pray your will before anything. And of course, God's will ought to be part of our prayers. It's in the Lord's Prayer. Perhaps more importantly, God's will is unthwartable. So it could be argued in one sense that it's a waste of breath. Of course, God already knows our heart. And what's modeled here is a clear answer to God about life as we actually experience it. When we're disoriented, I do not think we are to begin our prayers with how long, or ah, with your will be done. I think we're to begin our prayers with how long? And why is it like this? And I mean, look at verses 10 and 11. Get your hands out of your pockets, God. And here's the thing. If you have prayed that, 
you're killing it with the Psalms. You can just turn off the video and go make another cup of coffee or a waffle. Perhaps you don't like waffles. Verse 9 is complaint. Verse 10 and 11, take it from the fold of your garment and destroy them. Is God going to destroy them because we pray that? Of course not. But to quote my favorite author on the subject, Walter Brueggemann, it is an act of profound faith to entrust our most precious hatreds to God and everything else. It is an act of profound faith to entrust our most precious hatreds to God, knowing they will be taken seriously. When I read that statement in the 90s, sitting in a subway, not like the cart, like the restaurant, that's when I changed my mind and decided I had to do ministry because of the profound relational guidance and impact and truth the Psalms lead us to understand. And this is an interesting negotiation tactic, verses 12 through 17. Yet God is from of old. You divided the sea by your might. You crushed the heads of Leviathan. Heads, plural. Aren't you the creator? Isn't tohu vabohu subject to you? That's the formlessness and void from, generation, from a Genesis 1. That's free, a little, for a little free Hebrew. Tohu vabohu. Aren't you the creator? Aren't you sovereign over both the sea monsters and the chaos of the sea? This imagery would lead us to believe he's not talking about one or six specific sea monsters, but both the monsters in the sea and the chaos that the world was before God created the light and the dark. I remember as a kid thinking the Loch Ness Monster seemed pretty cool. What about you? Any Loch Ness Monster fans? By old church, we had a very, very... Um, but a woman who's very into Bigfoot. This is Megalodon. One of my daughters is very interested in Megalodon. This is the Mosasaur from Jurassic World. I don't know if that's the one from Jurassic World. That's about what they looked like. This is obviously the shark that was most scary to me growing up. And here's Psalm 74 utilizing the creation and perhaps the most frightening aspects to us as human beings of creation to negotiate with God about the world as we actually experience it as a relational move, individually and in community. Anger smokes over the gathering as the hostages negotiate. There are a lot of forms of negotiation in prayer in the Bible, and this is one of them. And what's the point of the series? It is that we learn to be psalm writers that we actually learn to identify our good seasons and, and learn to praise him in them, that we, in our disorientation, reach out to him with honesty and clarity and negotiating and complaining. There's this video of Eugene Peterson speaking with Bono, and they talk about learning to cuss without cussing, and I'm like, go ahead and cuss if it will lead to you being honest before God. That's why I'm not as famous as either of them, obviously. That's why. How are you? Because I'm a, your pastor, I have ended up seeing perhaps half of our congregation in one format or another or getting to talk with them on the phone. Some of you walk the property. So I know how some of you are doing, grieving. I know some of you are actually doing great in COVID and you feel a little guilty about it. For many of you, it's a very challenging time for a number of reasons, either because you've been furloughed from work, being with your family for this amount of time is challenging, have you expressed how this time actually is to God? A number of weeks ago, a good friend of mine received a very challenging diagnosis. 
And I went downstairs into the basement and I wrote a lament on the wall about he and his sons and his wife. Have you spoken with God about how you're actually doing? And if you have, I'm so encouraged. And I'll make a deal with you. If you send me your lament, I'll send you two of mine. I haven't written laments every I have not written a lament every day during COVID, but during COVID I have realized the importance of doing it. I did it before, but not often. Now I'm doing it somewhat often. Because that is what followers of God do. You send me one, I'll send you two. FYI, they're not mine are not very long. Yours don't need to be long either. It's a really challenging application. It's a simple application to understand to the sermon. It's a challenging one to actually do. But I hope that you do it. And that's not all that Christians do. In the past two weeks, I've gotten to talk with a teacher, an attorney, and an engineer who are all, two teachers, an attorney and an engineer who are all bothered by what's happening in the United States. And it was so lovely for me to learn what they have been doing for years because of their training, abilities, calling, the circumstances of their life and their history as a follower of Jesus with respect to the horrific issues of race in this country. And they, and they, they cross the political spectrum, these four people that I talk to, and yet they still know it's a problem and that as individuals with skills and a calling, they have a role to play. Why do I bring that up again? Because I know you're tired of me, some of you are tired of me bringing it up. It's because lament fuels the work that we have to do in our families, in our neighborhoods, in our places of business, and in our churches. And so if you know your calling with respect to the problems in the world, the injustices, the lack of neighbor love, good, you still need to learn to lament. And if you know to lament, you need to continue to lament. Not all the time. Your psalms don't need to be long, but we do need to learn the skill of writing them. Look at verses 18 through 23. Remember this, O Lord, how the enemy scoffs, and a foolish people reviles your name. That's a command. Remember this. Do not deliver the soul of your dove to the wild beast. Do not forget the life of your poor forever. Have regard for the covenant, for the dark places of the land are full of the habitations of violence. If you're unsure of my encouragements about lament, just simply take on verse 20 and pray that this week. Because isn't that true? The dark places of the land are full of the habitations of violence. Look at verse 21. Let not the downtrodden turn back in shame. Let the poor and needy praise your name. This text and our religion, which is one of following Jesus, not simply religious practices by a long shot, is for those who are downtrodden. Arise, O God, defend your cause. Remember how the foolish scoff at you all the day. Do not forget the clamor of your foes, the uproar of those who rise against you, which goes up continually. Take those verses and rewrite them from your perspective. We learn to be psalm writers and to grow as psalm writers. I believe you are a psalm writer, and I believe that learning to grow as one will continue to give us rest and peace in a world where indeed the land is full of darkness and sin. Yet we're called into a kingdom of light. 
And one of the provisions for us until Jesus returns or we go to be with him is learning to pray as he taught or as he learned to pray in the Psalms. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, how long will sin and destruction reign? How long until we can fully realize your picture of the kingdom in Revelation 7 verse 9? Every tongue and tribe and nation. How long will you allow this pandemic to wash over your world, separating us from one another and increasing our loneliness and and allowing so many to be sick and die? We know your will is unthwartably good, Lord, and we are confused. And ask, good shepherd, that you tend to us. Father, let us know that you are a good parent. Jesus, help us to remember your work throughout our week. Holy Spirit, enliven our spirits. Give us the comfort and peace of your grace and power. Father, Son, and Spirit, we are indeed holding on to you. Amen.